Uh, my name's Josh. I'm not Seth. Some of you are going to confuse me with that guy. He's the skinnier, younger version of me. Um, he works with adult ministry. I work with students. And I just want to make one announcement. We have winter camp coming up. As soon as kind of kids get back into focus, uh, it's January 13th through 16th. So if you have a student, we've got these cards at the info desk. Make sure you pop by and get one. If you want to be involved in other ways, people pray for us a lot. And then there's also uh, a decent amount of people who want to just give scholarship money to help students go to camp. So you can do that as well. You can talk to me or talk to someone or drop it in the box. But we've got these at the info desk for winter camp. So I'm the student guy, Seth's the skinnier adult guy. And I get to teach you today about delighting in your spouse. So normally I don't ever bring up any sermon stuff with my wife or kids because they're going to be in church more than the average Joe. All the time they're going to be in church, so I don't want to just bore them and give them more church than is necessary. But this particular passage is unique, so I wanted my wife's input. So I said, hey babe, I'm teaching on this marriage series. She's like, oh, what's your topic? Delighting in your spouse. So what are you going to talk about? So well, I think I have to talk about sex. And she said, well, I don't see the correlation. I said, uh, that's the problem, men. <laughs> men want this to be a 45 sex how-to manual. Women are crossing their fingers that that's all potentially we're talking about, or vice versa. But there's a miss between a man and a wife and a husband and a wife in a lot of areas. And delight is kind of where that miss gets felt. So we're going to talk about delighting today. And normally I have to think of a, a great way to intro it to get you kind of into the message. I don't have to because marriage matters to everyone. If you're single and you want to be married, this matters. If you're divorced and you've been hurt, the reason you've been hurt because this stuff's been missed. And you need to hear it taught from God's word. You need to be... Uh, cured and healed of a lot of pain, and God's Word can do that. If you're married, you need to learn how to delight in your spouse. So I'm going to do three things today. I'm going to talk about two things pretty quickly, what the Bible doesn't say about this particular topic, what it does say, and it, how it kind of focuses, and then the bulk of my time is going to be talking about this idea of how do you, as a spouse, cultivate delight in your marriage. So that's where the first one, how, what the Bible does not say, what it does say, and how do you cultivate delight in your marriage. So that's what we're going to do today. First thing is what the Bible does not say about this. And I'll say the Bible does not say you should have a biblical marriage. And you're like, whoa, some of you Christians are like, who is this guy? That's a, it's just weird language because the people in here that aren't married to a Christian, when you say biblical marriage, what does that mean? And when you even look at the Bible and look at the marriages in the Bible, most of them are terrible. So if you say biblical marriage, you're saying, some, you're saying more than what the Bible says of itself. It's not the book you open up to and you can get to any page and see a delightful marriage. Adam and Eve started off with this song. Adam sees her and he sings this song. Me and my wife are going to Boys to Men soon in Vegas. And Adam starts off with Boys to Men down on bended knee. And the very next interaction in the Bible is a fight. Song, singing to a naked lady fighting the next time they exchange words. That's the rub of marriage. We're bouncing back and forth between this spectrum of wanting boys to men in the background and just annoyed to heck with our spouse. So I'm going to talk about being a Christian spouse, not necessarily attaining to a biblical marriage because I don't know what that necessarily means. The other thing, it doesn't say being Christian will make your marriage great. Sorry. And you're like, gosh, I'm out of here. But I wrote down, if some of you are married to people who don't believe the same thing as you. And I can't promise you that that will ever happen. 
Some of you may never have a great sex life. I got saved at the end of high school, so throughout college, I'm kind of formative years for Christian uh, life for me. And I remember the first time I realized that just because a man and a woman were pure heading into marriage didn't guarantee that they were just going to have this blessed, fruitful, wonderful sex life. Because I, I had a past, and I, I, I saw this couple get married that was a, a, a virgin, and she was a virgin. I thought, that's how it's done, and they're going to be blessed for the next 60 years. And one of my account mentors at the time said, you know how many people I counsel who have terrible sex lives who were virgins when they came into marriage? Like, the Bible doesn't guarantee a lot of the stuff we want it to guarantee. Now, I'm starting off with the downers. We'll get to the good stuff. But, and it's not a guaranteed free pass on suffering, pain, fill in the blank. Marriage gives you a partner for life to go through that stuff. And they might even bring some of that stuff upon you, but it's no pass. So the Bible does not say a lot of that stuff. And here's the one I want, especially you that are new to the faith. I wrote, being great is required for your marriage to be great or for you to be a Christian. I don't want you to think you've got to be an A student or a B plus close to an A student for your marriage to flourish in the way the Bible talks about it flourishing. Or even you as a person. Seth just read from the Song of Solomon. It's the pinnacle of romance in the Bible as far as a man and a woman. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, a thousand sexual options. And that's what God has to use as he looks down upon man to write his boys to men love song that he was going to put in the Bible. Now, I'm not telling you men go out and just try lots of, I'm, the point is, we are all crooked stricks. Sticks. We're all crooked. And God can draw a straight line with the crooked stick. That's what he does. But we're all messed up. We're all sinful. You see Adam and Eve, a love song, and then a fight. We are broken, sinful, needing God's grace people. You don't have to walk into this door a pure virgin with greatest motives in marriage for God to help you flourish. You got to walk in here needy and say, God, I'm a sinner. Help me. That's when God loves to pounce and help. So I'll say that. What the Bible does say, though, and I'm just going to recap Seth, Luke, and then jump into my stuff. Seth said, marriage is the story of the Bible. It opens with a marriage, we see it, and it closes with the marriage. And our role, my, my role with Aubrey for how many years God gives me is to reflect that. We are singing harmony as God sings lead. It's his marriage, his relationship with his people, Israel, now the church, that is on display. And all of these little marriages and gateway and all across the world that are Christian spouse marriages are reflecting that truth in some tiny but significant way. So that's Seth's point. Luke's point last week. There are specific roles that God has set up. He hasn't left it loosey-goosey for us to figure out. He's zeroed in our focus on what our roles should be as we come into marriage. And even more so, kind of where I want to camp out, there is a focus in marriage that the Bible gives us. More than just the particular job titles God gives a husband and God gives a wife. And what do I mean by focus? Here's what I want to do. I'm going to just glance through. I did a word study on marriage, and I'm going to read everything I read about it in the Bible in about three minutes. And I can do that because the Bible doesn't talk that much about all these things you got to do in marriage. Like, how many of you grew up in a house where there was just a ton of rules? Like, rule upon rule upon rule upon rule. Anybody? Hands up high. That's my wife's house. 
You can use the blow dryer for three minutes. You got to get out of the bathroom after five minutes. You got to do your homework at 3.05. You got to do this. 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 And if something popped up in the house, new rule. Here's the new rule on that thing. I didn't have rules. I don't remember having a curfew. I don't remember much of it. I remember one rule in my house. Never, ever, 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 under any circumstance, adjust the thermostat in the house or you (laughs) were toast. One rule. That was my focus. Utility bill. Do not change that. The Bible's kind of like that. It really zeroes our focus for husbands and for wives. Just, so I'll just fly through. If you re- read through the book of Proverbs, you don't need to go there, but I just kind of wrote the summary. Men, don't be unfaithful. There's your summary. The opportunity and the temptation for that will never go away. Women, be nice, gracious, and careful with the words towards and about your husband. And after Jesus' husbands, there's nothing better in the world than finding a good wife. That's Proverbs. First Corinthians, do not deprive each other sexually except for maybe a short season where you devote yourself to prayer. Neither of you own your body. It belongs to the other. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives by nourishing and cherishing her until you get to present her back to Jesus better than when you got her. Wives, submit and respect. Colossians, husbands, don't be harsh. Wives, submit. See, this is pretty quick. We're almost done. First Timothy, leadership in the church should be marked by men who are wholly devoted to one wife. And these wives should not be slanderers with their words. Titus, men be steady and loving and faithful. Women, learn how to like your husbands. It says, older women, teach the younger women how to love their husbands. The love word there in Greek is like, like a brother, like a friend, like a buddy. Women, learn how to be buddies with that guy that annoys you. <laughs> so if I just had to sum it all, focus for men. Here's what I'd say. As you lead, cultivate a growing understanding and gentle approach with your wife. And be careful in finding sexual satisfaction elsewhere. That's the glasses you put on as you think about your marriage. Women, as you submit, cultivate a heart that genuinely likes your husband as a friend and be careful in using your words to diminish him. Now, I didn't bring my opinion onto this discussion. I just kind of went through the Bible and then summarized it. That's what we should be thinking about when we think about marriage. Here's what, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but here's what I notice in Christianity. They like to get very, we like to get vague and spiritual. So a wife will say, God, in her little ladies group, please just bring glory to my marriage. And God, I want your glory upon glory upon glory in my marriage. And I want you to glorify yourself with ultimate glory <laughs> in my marriage. Woman, what does that mean? Because <laughs> I'll go back and read the passages to you. It says you need to like your husband. You need to pray, God, I don't like him. <laughs> I just don't. I mean, I really, really don't. God help me. There's your prayer life. Men, you have the same problem. God, bring glory. Change my wife's heart. No, no. You learn how to understand her and be gentle and approach her as she is a porcelain doll. That's the focus of the Bible. So that's what we're going to talk about. Now, here's where I want to camp out for 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes. But this idea of what you should be cultivating as a Christian spouse in your marriage. 
So I like trees and grass and kind of green stuff, and I just got into gardening. My dad's a green thumb, very good. I asked him, hey, Dad, I want to start gardening. I said, what do I got to do? So I built my raised garden beds and all this, put it in the drip system. What should I start with? He said, start with radish. Any idiot can grow a radish. <laughs> Any radish growers in the room? We know that. Marital delight is not a radish. This doesn't happen a lot because it's not radish growing. I planted a lot of cabbage. Nothing's happened. Radish. I don't like radish, but I wanted to win early on in gardening. So we're cultivating. This is the language of the Bible. Even Paul talking to Timothy as he's kind of building up these churches, he says, you're like a farmer. And I, he says, think long and hard about this, and the Lord will give you understanding. Think long, think about the seasons, think about the soil, think about the water, think about what it takes to cultivate land that is good for it, plants. Now think about that in context of the church, and now think about that in context of your marriage. That's what we're talking about. You're thinking about the ingredients, not the finished product. That's what we want to talk about today. I have this quote from one of my favorite books, which is called The Gospel. But he talks about how you can get good doctrine, but your culture is terrible. He says this, a gospel culture is harder to lay hold of than gospel doctrine. It requires more relational wisdom and finesse. It involves stepping into a kind of community unlike anything we've experienced where we happily live together on a love that we can't create. What's the culture of your marriage currently or the marriage you want to have or the marriage that failed? That's what we're talking about. What's, what's the soil like? So I've got six things, but here's the big idea that's going to wrap it all together, just so you know what the focus is. Again, not a biblical marriage, because I don't know what that means. A Christian spouse should cultivate deepening friendship and intimacy in their marriage. If you're a Christian, this is your authority. And that's your focus in terms of delighting in your spouse. Focusing on deepening friendship and deepening intimacy. So I'm going to go with the first one here. And I think you should cultivate time. And I, with each of these, I have a question because Luke Simmons brought up a point when we talked about cultivating. He said, here's the reality. You are cultivating one or the other. It's like a snowball. You got these two snowballs that are building. Are you adding to the snowball of bitterness and resentment and distance and apathy? Or are you adding to the sweet, gentle, loving, caring, gracious snowball that is building in your marriage? It's, you're doing it, one or the other, with, it, with all your actions and your words and your prayer life and your thought life and how you go about your day, it's being added to. So with each of these, I'm going to kind of talk about the spectrum. So maybe a good way to think about it. Are you cultivating nearness or distance on kind of a Likert scale? Nearness, distance, where is your relationship with your spouse right now? Just, I don't want you to stand up and slap anyone and shout out, but <laughs> that's the question. Are you making time for each other? And I have a lot of passages, so I don't want to put them on the screen. But in the Old Testament, God gets this. Because he says in Deuteronomy 24, 5, When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable to any other public duty. He shall be free at home for one year to be happy with the wife whom he has taken. God gets seasons in this nearness and distance thing. Your season of life, if you're, if you're like us and you have little kids, we think it's the hardest season of life. It probably is, I don't know, but it's a hard season to cultivate this time thing. 
And what's weird, just particularly in my marriage, is we've never had to cultivate kind of individual time, which I think plays into this too. Like my wife's love language, if you ever read the book Love Language, you got quality time, physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, and gifts. Hers is time like to the nth degree. So for the first 10 years of marriage, she just wanted to be with me. And it's great. Like that was her downtime. And now she's got three little me's at the house that perpetually remind her of me. And now she's like, ah, can I get out of the house a little bit? Babe. And so we're kind of, this is, it's not a static thing. It's soil. You're always kind of looking at. Think about these things Paul told Timothy. So in my season of life, it's cultivating time with us, but it's also thinking about her and how she kind of needs some individual time. She gets it for me. I'm easy. Get up early, go to the coffee shop, sit there for a couple hours, kind of doodling and reading. I'm good. Or if I'm really kind of stressed, let me go up to the mountains with my chainsaw, chop down some wood and sit by a campfire for the whole day and come back. I'm good. We're figuring out what this time thing looks like for her right now. And that's what you need to be focusing on. There's a, there's a book called Three Questions for a Frantic Family. If you're just getting hosed right now in your life and you have, you're just drowning with time and commitments, Three Questions for a Frantic Family, I think three or four of the pastors on staff have read through it. It's, just, it's a short story about a wife saying, hey, husband, it's a fake story. Our life is spiraling. And he's a business consultant. She's like, this is what you do for a living. He says, all right, let's, let's stop. And it basically just makes you stop and think about priorities in your family. It's a, it's a good book. Um, and then we got this slide here. Luke Simmons is actually off today, but he worked really hard, a long time. And he put together this little resource. So if you go to that website there, Gateway Redemption AZ backslash great dates, he put together six or eight really good dates for you and your wife to enjoy. So if you're struggling even to get a date night or think about what could be a date night, we put together that resource for you to think about how you can cultivate nearness as opposed to distance. Again, none of this, none of this is easy. And especially in particular seasons. But what are you cultivating right now? Do you have a date night? You don't need one, but maybe you need one. How do you have time together? And just bringing that focus of the Bible, I would say the Bible would warn men don't treat your family. Don't cheat your family. Cheat your work. Be careful. The Song of Solomon is a good book. It's a, it's a couple in love. They have sex twice in it. It's a wonderful book to read for marital delight. Never once is his job mentioned. And never once are the children mentioned. Are you cultivating sweetness with just you and her? You and him. Or is life just bearing down on you? I get it, but you need to think about what you're calling. Women, again, I tell you, the Song of Solomon does not mention children. So those of you who, like us, have kids, how are you prioritizing time with your spouse in the midst of potentially a crazy season? But you need to cultivate time. Next one is this. It's a communication. Are you cultivating vulnerability or guardedness? So these are kind of, I th this is the one I thought longest about. How do I want to word the kind of different soils you're cultivating? And vulnerability is what I came up with because when you look at the Bible, Adam and Eve start off, it says naked and unashamed. When I do counseling with people, I always say they were naked and unashamed and they didn't have anything to hide. That's the goal of marriage. 
And I think I'm missing it because here's the reality. Adam and Eve and every person since adds clothing to themselves in terms of their story of life, their actions, their deeds, their successes, their failures, their sins. So we can't go back to nakedness because Adam and Eve had done nothing. We all have stories. One of my older pastors back in Texas would say, son, you play the card you're dealt. I'm talking about your wife. Meaning your wife has a story. That's the cards you've been dealt in life. Play them well. Same thing with us. But we can't go back to nakedness because we all have stuff we're wearing now. Here's the sweetness of the gospel. When you get to Revelation 21, 22, the end of the book, you're given clothing by Jesus to cover all your shame, all your guilt, all your pain. As a spouse, are you helping create an environment where your spouse can experience more and more and more and more of that? Now, vulnerability is for some of the guys like, who is this hippie kid up here? I don't need to be vulnerable. Yes, you do. TED Talks is a thing kind of just blew up overnight. And one of the top, I think it's three or four TED Talks is one on vulnerability. It's been watched like 30 million times. And vulnerability in the workforce. And it's this professor, Brene Brown, this gal in Texas. And she just talks about the need to be able to be exposed and not constantly be afraid of the reaction when you actually expose yourself. Is that being cultivated in your marriage? Or are you constantly guarded and hiding and retreating because of the way you interact and the way you communicate? Um, we, we know... Trump's our president now, and on election night, the, the thing that stood out to me most, I was watching Fox News, and Glenn Beck came on, and he was just kind of at a loss for words. It's like, I, I just, I've missed it. And his point was, not that necessarily Trump became president, but he's like, how divided we are. Because there's people who voted for Trump with deep convictions as to why, and they're excited. And there's people who are so scared and full of tears and sad over Trump's election. And his point was not one's right or the other. The point is this side does not understand this side. And this side does not understand this side at all. He says, we are a country that just doesn't listen. Is that your marriage? I think I was feeling kind of proud in this. Understanding your wife, I got this thing nailed. I'm good. My wife said, we we're talking about Christmas tradition stuff, and she says, there's one I don't want to really do this year. And in my head, I gave a reason why. Well, it's probably the craziness of the kids or whatever. Later on, she kind of let out why. I'm not going to share why. But I was so far off. It had to do with some sadness and various things. But it was like, I did not understand her in the least in that moment, and I thought I did. And we live in a country that doesn't even care to understand the other side. That's not an option in a Christian spousal obligation. You have to listen. It's your duty, especially you men. Especially you men. I wrote these questions to kind of just assess where you're at. Could you write a book right now on loving your spouse well? Meaning your specific spouse. How to Love Bob Clevin by Pat Clevin. Could you write a book? How to Love Your Aubrey Watt by Josh Watt. Could you write a book? You'd be like, how many pages? Okay. (laughs) Could you write a chapter? Couple. Could you write a blog? Just one sheet. Could you give a tweet? (laughs) 
That's the question in your head for communication. Are you filling up your reservoir of what you understand about your spouse or not? That is the question. For men, I'd say this. Is your communication with your wife noticeably different than with others? The thing that rubs my wife wrong is when I kind of buddy up with her. I come from a really blunt, crass sort of family. And as soon as I kind of joke and stuff, it's like, shh, knock it off. Like, and I think the Bible backs it up because it's live with your wives in an understanding way, like she's porcelain. Is your communication like that, like you're holding porcelain, or is it like Tupperware? You can just toss it around. That's, that's the focus for men in communication. For women, is your communication with your husband noticeably different than with others? Here's what the Bible says about a good wife. She is the crown of her husband. Meaning she is such a delight to him. She would love for her to be the spokesperson for, that, for him on a job interview, at his funeral. She, she, he would love it when she speaks for him. Are you the crown? I wrote this. Does your husband wear you as a crown or need to wear a helmet because of your words with him? Proverbs says over and over again, wives, do not nag. Wives, do not nag. Wives, since you're not going to go home and read Proverbs, I just want to read it for you. Wives, do not nag. And some of your wives are like, this guy's not funny at all. <laughs> I get it. It's hard. Really, and especially guys like... Being vulnerable and talking and Luke asked the question, share your feelings. Ah, oh, that was terrible. Just terrible. Me and my wife got a book on my, on my Kindle, which is on my phone. 201 great questions for married couples. And when kind of, she usually triggers this. She notices like our communication is just kind of about facts and details and kids and schedules. She's like, you going to bring that book on our date? Okay, I'll bring it. We bust it out and it's like, how do you feel about this? Ah, but I can't come up with these questions all the time, so I have that little resource to help. It's not easy. It's not easy. Next one, realistic expectations. Are you cultivating cynicism or a grounded hope? What do I mean by that? I got a quote here. I'm a wise man. This is Mike Creel's our bass player. This is his dad. And Andy t does a lot of like marriage stuff with the young people. Mike's taking a picture of it to send his dad. Like, you made it. You arrived. You're a graphic. He says, women marry men hoping they can change them, and men get married hoping their wives will never change. <laughs> I like your body. I like your sweetness. I like everything about you. Please stay the same. <laughs> and neither one of those things happen. Are you content with the limits of what your spouse brings to the table, but within that limits, praying for more and more for them? This, Tim Keller has a book on prayer, and it was so helpful for me. He says, why prayer with God is so important. He said, he's the only person in the universe that understands all of you and all of your roles. So he gets me as a spouse, and he gets me as a worker, and he gets me as a man. He gets me as this. And my wife is like a good chunk of my life and my existence, but she's just a piece of the pie. I am not just husband to Aubrey. I'm a lot of things. But Within what she can bring to me or what your spouse can bring to you are, you, are you being more and more cynical or more and more realistic and hopeful towards what God can do in them? 
Andy Creel is kind of for the layman, the more fancy one. This is from a doctor. He says it this way. Marriage requires a radical commitment to love our spouses as they are while longing for them to be what they are not yet. Every marriage moves either toward enhancing one another's glory or toward degrading each other. Women are going to change. Men aren't going to change. <laughs> Wives, you got to like them still. Men, you got to pursue her still. But are you realistically living within the limits of what your spouse can be for you? That's the battle. Men, I tell you this. Your big struggle, according to the Bible, is your adulterous heart. It just beats that drum a lot. Just be aware of it. Women, the Bible tells you your big struggle is going to be to like your husband. Plain and simple. Not some fantasy future version that you've dreamed up with all the parts and pieces from movies and other spouses you've seen, but the fat, lazy, snoring, hobby crazy, can't fix a car, can't mow a lawn, can't make a meal version of a spouse that's sitting on your couch right now. Do you like him? Good. Or do you want to go in a prayer group and pray for God's glory? And <laughs> Next one, fighting. Are you cultivating competition or unity? Do you guys win? You beat her, she beats you, and you're taking score. Or is there a sense of coming together in unity? Ephesians says this, be angry. Bible's okay with it. But do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. Meaning there should be fights in marriage. There's two sinners that's come together. And some of you who are meek and mild and gentle are the ones that need to hear this. You need to learn how to bring about your fighting in your marriage so that there is more and more clarity and unity. That's, be angry, do not sin. Very helpful in our pre-marriage counseling, our couple gave us a scale. They said, when you get to this point in marriage, we have a scale, one to ten. And you got to say, how important it is to you? So I wanted to move back here to pursue ministry. It's a 10. Aubrey really loved our life in Texas. But she submitted because hers wasn't a 10. It was like a 2. I said, okay, I'll, I'll come. Every fight can't be a 10. Everything is not a 9 or a 10. Women. According to Proverbs, you like to share everything that's on your scale. <laughs> I would just say, are, have you really thought about what a 9 and what a 10 is for you in your marriage? And have you learned how to bring that up to your spouse? Or everything that annoys you, if it's a point one on the scale, it's, you don't even really care, but you just have an opinion about it. That's not cultivating unity. Your husband will shut down so fast. He'll be so insecure. Men are insecure. I'm a leader, and if I take leadership stuff, it's always like, oh, he's a leader. But I have so much insecurity that I'm still battling with the gospel. My wife can speak life into me like no one else. Like no one else. And she could bring me down faster than anyone else. Like, I have no way to measure this, but in my sermons, I bet, so the ones we put online are the ones that are your best. I bet if at the end of my preaching career, most of them are the sermons where Aubrey was in the audience. Because she just, she's my crown. She brings me a sense of, I can do this. Are you that for your husband, wives? 
Men, you need to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, a lot. And then, please help me understand you better. And shut up and listen. Fighting is good. We're sinful people who need to come together. But there's a way to go about it that cultivates good stuff and cultivates bad stuff. All right, sex life is just one of these. Unfortunately, men, you wanted more, but this is all I had. One point out of the six. Are you cultivating intimacy or apathy? Specifically, apathy towards your spouse, because I don't think the sex desire goes away. You just spend it elsewhere. Are you cultivating intimacy or apathy? Are you looking for ways to stay romantically connected? So I don't want anyone to answer this out loud. But in our premarital, the couple said, Aubrey asked the question, how much sex should we be having in marriage? And the lady gave an answer, in a week. You're like, in a week, what? You mean in a month? No, in a week, she said. There was a number. But here's what's true in your marriage. The husband has a certain amount that would be good for him, weekly or monthly or whatever. And the wife kind of has a rhythm to what she would think maybe is a good amount of sex. Like if you were doing pre-marriage counseling, what would you guys both answer? Second thing, would you have come to the place where you kind of are in agreement and there's some common ground and, okay, this is about what we try to strive for. You're like, this is... Song of Solomon is mainly about the sexual coming together of the husband and wife. So it's important. Are you cultivating that? And then within just kind of a natural flow of life of what would be good, is there more and more spontaneity? primarily coming from a husband pursuing and a woman responding if we look at how the Bible speaks. Like, how's your sex life? Is it good? I asked a group of guys as I was preparing for this, what would you want your wife to hear from me in this delighting in your spouse thing? And a few of them said the same thing. I would just like her to know how much it means to me when she greets me when I get home and starts this intimacy that may or may not lead to sex but just initiates that desire for me. I would love that. That's what. Men, do you brush your teeth before you get into bed with your wife? There's lots of little things you can add to that. <laughs> Men, according to the Bible, you have one outlet for your sexual pursuit. How is it going? This is where vulnerability kicks in, because there's pain and hurt in the sex department for a lot of marriages. If you haven't dealt with the communication and the vulnerability piece, the intimacy is trailing far behind. It's never going to catch up. So this order matters. The sex came down the road on purpose from my end. Are you talking and are you exposing more and more of yourself and your failures in a way that's bringing unity within you two? Uh, last one, just fun. This one's simple. Are you cultivating joy or crabbiness? <laughs> I heard one older guy say, as men get older... They really lose their creativity. And as women get older, they tend to grow in their crabbiness. <laughs> Men, are you still creative? Like, think about the mental energy you have put towards your work in this last month or maybe year. And then r rank it next to the amount of mental energy you've put into being creative towards your wife. Is there just no comparison? Your work wins, hands down. Or is your wife getting a little bit of your creative juices as well? Again, this isn't, this isn't easy. Men, pursue, 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 pursue. And if you don't know, Google, and it'll help you out. 
how can I have a romantic date with my wife? I Google a lot of stuff. It's amazing. Man, there's no excuse. We have TiVo now. You can pause football. (laughs) Seriously, no excuse. Women, like your husband, like your husband, like your husband, like your husband, like your husband. Smile. How often does your husband get a smile from you just because you delight in him? Like, (laughs) when's the last time he's seen that? Like, what's, what's up with that? Who are you? I just like you. Seriously, who are you? Are you drunk? (laughs) Smile. And here's a little thing I've noticed. Say each other's names. I tend to, when I'm like flowing through life and just getting a lot done, it's babe and all these, you know, cutesy words. But when I stop and say Aubrey, I really want to say thank you. Aubrey, Josh, Aubrey. It stops us. Adam and Eve stopped using each other's names when they were fighting. Use your name. Smile a lot. This is hard for various reasons for a lot of people. I would just end with this. Get help or be help. Six things I brought up. And if you're struggling in one of those, here's what I'd ask you to do. Start praying. God, bring me somebody, a couple, a man, a wife that could help me. Here's what a lot of people want. A mentor that they can walk through life with till the end. That's not how mentoring works like you have a question about marriage we are terrible at fighting god bring me somebody in this church that can help us learn how to fight better contact a pastor a counseling pastor just someone around you get help we need tools in marriage or if you like hear this and you generally just delight in your spouse start to pray about how you could be a help to couples who don't necessarily have this coming that easy to them You need better tools, and those tools are here in the church. It's just a matter of sharing them. But here's where I want to end. It's not just a matter of better tools. I think we need better theology. The idea of delight, I think, for especially Protestant, good, theologically grounded Christians is so cross-focused, we lose out on a lot of stuff. You're like, again, what's this guy saying? So I used to go and watch TV. I'd stand in front of my parents on the couch, and they'd always say, you make a better door than you do a... I think the cross has become the door for a lot of us. And when we think about Jesus and the Bible and faith, it always ends at the cross. Like, you've thought about the the blood that Jesus has shed for you, but how often have you thought about the smiles he has smiled upon you? Bloodshed, smiles. Why? Is he not smiling? Is Jesus not a smiley guy? Does Jesus love you? Christians in the room would say, yes, why? Because the cross, he forgave all my sin, yes. Even my adulterous affair, yes. The worst of you as a spouse, he forgave, absolutely. Does he like you? I don't know. Where's the missing point? The cross has become a door, not a window. It's the window for which we see everything. And as we read the rest of the story, how does it end? Let me show you a picture. This is how it ends. Look at that couple. Look at that hair on that guy. So young and dumb, doesn't know anything, but he loves that girl. The Bible ends 
a wedding. Not a cross. You need the cross to get access into the wedding. But it ends with that. Jesus is the groom, the perfect. That guy is a sinner. He has sinned against that girl more times than he wants to realize. Jesus is perfect. And what's he doing when he's waiting for us? Is he, I hope they got their cross theology right. I can't wait to test them on their cross theology. (laughs) Or is he smiling like a groom does when his bride is coming towards him? He is smiling. So get your tools, ask people, but get your theology, a theology that's full of delight. And the only way you get that is if you know the Bible, which ends with a far better looking groom than that guy who loves you and is smiling upon you. Let's pray.